Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Tom Elliott. We're outside the library at Linfield University today. It's March 11th, 2022. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, The first and biggest question to get you started is why wine? So that could be a very long story right there. That could take the whole interview. Perfect. (laughs) But I'll try to condense it. Um, Why wine is, came out of why music? Because I was playing music um, semi-professionally with a girlfriend back in the East Coast. We were living in Connecticut and taking trips into New York and really trying to make it. Turned out New York was too expensive and she had relatives in just south of San Francisco so we thought we'd head out that way on our way to LA and try to make it there. Well we never made it to LA. Um, It probably was about 15 years until I made it to LA. I ended up in San Francisco. Made it to LA meaning for a visit. Um, So being a musician, when you into the music, the arts, whatever, and you're young, often you're working in restaurants, cafes, and such for your day job, and that's what I was doing. And uh, I was working in a wine shop, not a wine shop, that came just after, in a cafe in North Beach called Cafe Lido, L-I-D-O, on Broadway. And in those days, Broadway was really interesting, a lot going on. And um, the person who was buying the wine for Cafe Lido was a waiter, and he wasn't really interested in it. And here I was in California, and I'm seeing wines around, and I, I tasted a little wine back east, but being in California, being in the cafe, um, around wine country, and, and winemakers would even come in to Cafe Lido selling wine. And uh, so this guy, as I said, he wasn't really interested in the job. And um, I forget, maybe I talked to him or maybe I talked to the owner saying, you know, if he doesn't want to do it, you know, I'd be happy to do it. And they said, the job is yours. (laughs) And then I went to all the used bookstores around town and picked up every wine book I could find and read, read them cover to cover and learned a lot real quick. I got invited to trade tastings and um, tasted wines from around the world um, and uh, found that I could actually make a living with wine or I couldn't with music. (laughs) That's why wine. (laughs) Tell me about learning wine. You mentioned kind of just diving into it through books and through trade tastings. What, what, what did you enjoy about learning about wine and, and what was the process like for you? How did you find yourself kind of re- learning and retaining information? Well, I love learning stuff, still do, and uh, still a lot to learn. Um, I find wine to be extremely interesting in so many different ways, from a scientific way, from an aesthetic way, from an artistic way, and the, it, it did relate to the arts to me. 
Um, I can't think of another like beverage or even or food, you know, that has the kind of expression that wine can have such so many voices uh, as wine has, and uh, and these voices can be expressed in so many different ways, just like musical voices. Yeah. So taking on the, the role as a, as a wine buyer, what were the, what, what did you have to kind of learn immediately in order to successfully do the job? What, what did you have to learn in terms of taste of wine, in terms of profile, to, to fill the shelves as you needed to? So I, it was really important to me, again relating to music, to have music be perfect. And for me the wine should be perfect and free of flaws. So I tried to learn all about wine flaws, and that helped me with finding the really fine wines, the good wines, the sound wines, the wines that people couldn't complain about because it was my fault. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, does that is there more to the question? I'm than? just I'm curious, like c coming into it in that perspective, you you obviously had to learn it fast, and so you had mm -hmm. to you had to teach yourself that. So when it came to learning wine flaws. Um, how, how long does it take? How long did it take to feel comfortable in that role? Yeah, so it, it, there wasn't a lot of pressure really <laughs> to um, learn real fast, except for the pressure that I put on myself. Um, the place was really laid back. I mean, as I said, the wine buyer didn't even care about having the job. So yeah, they were happy to have someone who did. Um, yeah, and just, you know, some minor things, learning how to price it correctly and yeah control inventory correctly. Um, it's not hard. <laughs> yeah. So what came next to you after that? Now that you're now that you're learning wine, what came next? So that was in 1980-81. And there was a gal there who at Cafe Lido, she was from um, uh, what's the town? Um, around Forest Grove that sounds Hawaiian. Oh, Aloha? Yeah. <laughs> so, and um, she would go back and visit her parents um, and uh, once or twice a year and she would bring back like a couple few Oregon wines and um, and we got to try them. Um, she must have brought them back for me to try them and um, I remember the first time she brought them, I thought, these aren't really very good. <laughs> um, but then the second time she brought a couple few wines and I'm like, oh, that one's quite good. Mm -hmm. And the third time is like, wow, these are all really good. <laughs> and so that's what really got me noticing Oregon wines in about, yeah, 1981, 82. And I bought some for Cafe Lido mm -hmm. back then. There was uh, like, there would be a distributor would have this one Oregon producer There'd be another distributor had that one Oregon producer. Tualatin sold their own wine themselves in California in those days. So I, I got it sort of direct from the winery because the partner, Bill Malkmus, lived mm -hmm. in, on the peninsula just south of San Francisco. And, and he had a gal working for him who had come into the cafe. So I picked that up from them. I picked up in those days, I remember, some Sokol Blosser, um, uh, Elk Cove, mm -hmm. yeah, those are some names I remember. 
you mentioned it improving each time you tried it. How did it compare to other wines you were tasting and selling? How, how, how was Oregon in that time comparing to the other wines in your life? They were really different. And that was one of the things I really liked about them. They were good and they were different. They were lighter, more delicate, elegant, really lovely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then you mentioned uh, eventually working at a wine shop. Was that the next kind of the next wine stop for you? Yeah. So um, I think I was still working at Cafe Lido, and then um, worked also at Castro Village Wine Company, um, where they were doing only just California wines, which was fine. I wasn't the buyer there; I was a clerk, but I'd still get to taste and sell and learn retail wine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I lived in that neighborhood, and it was easy for me. And I was like doing weekend work there, and maybe filling in, and working at Cafe Lido also. And uh, while I was at Cafe Lido, Alex and Gail Deerkaising, who had All Seasons Market, and uh, now sorry, they had Silverado Restaurant in Calistoga. That was like the first or one of the very first Wine Spectator award-winning restaurants for their wine program. So they would come in. I, I don't know what they were coming into the city so much for, but I got to know them. Uh, I imagine they were coming in for trade tastings that were held in the city uh, or um, restaurant supply places. And I learned that they, they told me they were opening this new place right across from Silverado. Uh, called All Seasons Market, and they were looking for a wine buyer. And I gave it some thought, and before they left, <laughs> I said, I'll do it. <laughs> uh, I you know, thought, yeah, I'll get to live in Napa Valley. <laughs> so I, that was in 1983. I moved to Calistoga and be became the wine manager, not only for All Seasons, but for Silverado Restaurant. So now, all of a sudden, I've got this like Wine Spectator Award-winning grand prize, you know, a, award um, wine list uh, that I'm managing as well as a wine bar at All Seasons and a wine shop and um, met every weekend we'd have, you know, another Napa Valley or Sonoma or uh, winemaker come in to pour their wines. So this was in 80 and 84 and 85 and by that time I knew everybody in Napa and Sonoma I mean really there weren't that many <laughs> um, and uh, it's uh, one of the people I met was um, Patrick McElligot who was working for Myron Redford at Amity but he was managing the Lawrence Gallery tasting room and he came in with a bunch of Oregon wines. And um, I don't know if he heard about me or something or where he just met me there, I don't remember. But we got to talk. And he would come down a couple times a year. And he'd bring wines. And uh, he wanted big California reds to go home with. And he brought, for me, elegant, delicate Oregon wines. <laughs> so that was really great meeting him. And you know, I made some, started making some trips up to Oregon, and visited Patrick at the tasting room, and he told me everything that was going on up here. He knew everybody 
like I knew everyone in Napa, Sonoma, he knew everyone in Oregon. And then pretty much, pretty soon after that, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in a second. I have a couple questions from that time. I'm curious, that's obviously an interesting time to have gotten into Napa, to, to have gotten there and to know people. Describe for me what Napa looked like in the early, mid-1980s and, and, and how, it was, how it was changing as you were there. Yeah, um, so there were a lot of, it was all family owned and operated and small. Um, and that was starting to change. Um, I told you about a Nancy Ponzi letter that is in that packet that I gave to you to look over. And she wrote me this letter and she said, uh, you know, they were touring Napa. This was in 1984 and, and they came down, they, they saw me at, at, at all seasons. And when she got back, she wrote this letter um, and said that, yeah, it's, uh, what they call small here is, you know, <laughs> you know, we're we're just a drop in the bucket, you know. But and then there's this, who was the winery? Uh, Peju, I think it was, that was just opening up. And she goes, wow, they make like ten thousand cases, and you know, you know, we, you know, we might make two or three thousand, you know, it, and we're one of the bigger ones. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, and now, I mean, everyone knows what Napa is today, right? It's a lot of corporations and some huge productions and not so many like they were, small family owned and operated where they did everything themselves. Mm -hmm. There's a few, but yeah, they're kind of far between. You talked about your first, you kind of first wine buying work being pretty low pressure. Now, a little bit different now, I assume, with, with the Wine Spectator Award winning list to, to manage and a lot of different places to fill. So tell me about that, that leap for you. Were you, were you ready for it? Did, 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 you, did you just hit the ground running? Yeah, I was ready for it. I read all the books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, and then, you know, every time I met a wine grower, I would, I, I knew, I learned even more. Mm -hmm. And uh, just the fact of working in restaurants, working in retail, working in wine, you just pick things up every day. Mm -hmm. So tell me about those trips to Oregon. Uh, what, what did you think of, of Oregon as you got to see it and got to know the people here in the industry? Or how did it compare? What, 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 what excited you about it? Yeah, well, I might even preface that by um, saying how I ended up visiting Oregon um, and uh, I, I was at All Seasons and really I was already convinced about Oregon wines and I was buying them also for, I was, as I was for Cafe Lido, I was buying them for uh, All Seasons and, and Silverado Restaurant. Um, there were wines I couldn't get though because they weren't distributed here mm -hmm. and uh, I talked to the Ponzi's. I guess I must have called them up. Uh, um, I don't remember the conversation, but they weren't distributed here, so I'm sure I called them and uh, said, I want to get your wines in here. And they're like, okay, how are we going to do that? <laughs> uh, and uh, well, it ended up that they, um, they drove down um, with, I think it was like two or three, three cases each of 1981, 82, and 83 Pinot Noir. Um, so that was really nice. Um, 
But there must have been self-distributed. No, no, sorry, it wasn't 89. It was 79, 80, and 81 Pinot Noirs. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, we hung out a bit, uh, and uh, they vacate. They did their thing around Napa Valley. Um, but then I saw them again because uh, not just them, but a number of producers at all seasons because uh, along the way I had met Andre and Dorothy Chelischeff. They lived in Napa at the other end of the valley, but they came up to Calistoga quite a bit mm -hmm. and they liked to have lunch at all seasons because all seasons wasn't just a market, it was a cafe as well. And so I got to met, meet them and um, talking about this and that and the other thing and then the subject of Oregon wines. And I didn't know that Andre was a judge at the Oregon State Fair at the time. And he was also doing some consulting with, I believe with Erath, maybe with some other producers, with Chateau St. Michel in Washington. <clears throat> and, uh, and he was, yeah, he, was in, he thought that was a good idea, you know, to be bringing some of these wines here. Um, and I told him then, at one of the meetings, we, while they're at the table, when I met them, another time, uh, that I was thinking of starting a business to distribute these wines, because nobody was really doing it seriously, and only a, a few distributors had a brand each, and I'm tasting a lot of really good stuff from a lot of producers who aren't here. Mm -hmm. And he, he said, it's a really good idea. He said, um, those wines are gonna be really important someday. And uh, that was what really launched me into it. He pushed me into it, really. <laughs> well, prodded me or encouraged me. And um, yeah, I think of him as a mentor. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I came up on a scouting trip, saw Patrick, of course. He, as I said, he was a great asset. Uh, what year would this have been? 84. Okay and uh, visited producers that I already knew I wanted, mm -hmm. um, but got to see them in person at their vineyards. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first uh, producer that we signed up, quote unquote, there was no signature, uh, <laughs> is, uh, was Ponzi. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then I don't remember the exact order, but on the same trip, it might have been the same day, or within two days, Elk Cove, Amity, Oak Knoll, and Forgeron. Yeah. And uh, that's what brought me up to Oregon the first time. So you, you mentioned it already being kind of sold on the wines that you were tasting and, and, and your, your, your future impressions of Oregon wine. What about the people? Uh, as you got to know the Oregon wine industry, what, what, what did you think of the people who were making the wine and what, why, did you, why were you so optimistic that it would have a strong future, I guess is really the question. What about them made you think the wines were going to keep getting better and better? Yeah, well, um, just stepping back a moment, I don't want to uh, forget, I don't want to leave out also another tremendous help to me uh, up here was Stephen Carey and his partner at the time, Reuben Rich. Uh, so they had Carey Oregon Wines, C-A-R-Y, 
um, which was a great name. Um, and so they were brokered, uh, pioneered brokering um, Oregon wines around the country. And uh, so Stephen went around also with me to some of these producers. And he was a great help in getting us connected in that way, and also as a way to get the wines consolidated uh, to ship down to California. And uh, I'm sorry, so then you're... I'm curious about the, the people you were meeting in Oregon. What, 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 did you, what did you think of the people making Oregon wine at that point, and, and why, were, why did you think the future would be bright with them making it? Well, the future, the wines were clearly really good. <laughs> um, nobody knew about them, but that was my job. <laughs> Um, and I thought I could do it. And um, I knew it was going to be a lot of hard work, and it, it, and it was, but it was enjoyable work. And I, I knew it would be successful, because it had to be. Because <laughs> the quality was there, and people would discover it, per body, person by person by person, wine shop by wine shop, by restaurant by restaurant, there, there could be no keeping it down. And what about their reaction to you? Uh, obviously that was in the early days of Oregon wines, like you say, getting into the world. What did they think of you and what in your venture? Well, Stephen thought I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you shouldn't just do Oregon wines. Um, and you shouldn't call it your company Northwest Wines which is Northwest Wines LTD, because you might want to pick up wines from other places. And I'm like, no, um, you know, there's like, we, there's Burgundy importers, you know, they just specialize in Burgundy. There's Italians importers, they just specialize in Italy. You know, there's companies that just specialize in California. Um, no one specializes in just Oregon. And, and I think it's worth doing. Well, a year later, I did add a Washington wine, <laughs> which, you know, fits under Northwest Wines, right? So, um, and then we added more and more, of course, Oregon and Washington wines. But we're Oregon wine-driven company. So tell me about the early days then. You mentioned that it was going to be a lot of hard work to get these wines in front of people and to get people to start buying them. So tell me about how you went about it. Once you had people signed up, once you had the wines coming in and you had done, you kind of had done the, the groundwork, what was your next big step? So it wasn't really that hard getting the wines in front of people, people being the wine buyer at the wine shop or the restaurant, but the reactions were sometimes kind of funny. <laughs> like, they make wine in Oregon, really? Nah. <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah, they tasted it and they're like, that's pretty good. Send me a case. <laughs> so, yeah. It, uh, but that didn't mean they could sell it. <laughs> the public still didn't know. They didn't trust it. They didn't get it. But they had to taste it. And over time they did. And when they did, they liked it. Uh, San Francisco in particular 
got behind Oregon Pinot Noir really strongly. These, this was in the days when the buyers, the San Francisco, the Northern California buyers, right in the backyard of California wine country, were of the opinion that California didn't make very good Pinot Noir. And that was, for the most part, correct. There were some exceptions. Um, it's a lot different today. There's a lot of really good California Pinot Noir today. But they would taste these Oregon Pinot Noirs and go, yeah, that's good. I mean, that, that's like burgundy good. And um, so, again, it didn't mean they could sell them easily, but, but they got it. And they got behind them. And they promoted them to their customers. And San Francisco loves Oregon Pinot Noir and has for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot harder with Washington wines because Washington had the big reds like California and the same kind of big reds. Well, maybe not Zinfandel, but Cabernet, Merlot. And it's like, well, you know, the buyers are like, what do we need that for, you know? That's, that's a real hard push. And it, it, it took us decades to break in Washington wines. Now they're pretty successful in, in California. With Oregon specifically, how, how long did it take until you felt you were successful? At what, what point did it feel like what you wanted to do was working? Uh, when I started paying myself after <laughs> seven years or so. <laughs> yeah. And the reaction of the people who were buying from you, you mentioned the, you, they, they, they were happy to try and then they became some of your kind of your, your, your power users. Uh, at, at what point did you, at what point was it beyond San Francisco? At what point did you kind of get beyond and start selling elsewhere? Or was San Francisco always kind of the base of, of your selling? Well, I started the company while I was still working at all seasons. I was in Calistoga and I was making like a three hour round trip into the city and got tired of that, moved to the city in 85, um, 85 and a half. And um, so I was selling the wines myself, really. But about a year later, um, I knew this guy who's from Switzerland, Walter Munz, M-U-N-Z. Uh, he was a, a baker and a confectioner by trade but he was really into wine. We were both judging at the San Francisco, I think it was called San Francisco, Internet, not, it wasn't international, San Francisco Wine Competition. I was judging at a lot of different wine judgings around California and I got invited up to um, Puyallup for the Enological around there and this was all in the, like around 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88. And um, so I knew Walter from the judgings, and he had a wine tasting group, and I went to his wine tasting group, and I'm like, hey, Walter, you want to sell some wine too? Because he was so into it, and he liked the wines that I had. And so he, it was me and him. So I was full-time, and he was part-time. <laughs> um, but then he got too busy with his own business that got really successful, and, uh, and I got a couple of other sales reps in 89. And we were doing, and then even another one or two or three in like the early 90s. And we were doing just Northern California. And that was a lot. And then in 1990, I um, also partnered with 
a company, Curlew Wines, C-U-R-L-E-W, 1990, and we're still partnered with them. Um, they covered the Central Valley and the Sierras. So that's what we covered through 1996. And then I partnered with this gal in uh, LA. Um, and so she had our book down there as part of, in, integrated into her book. Um, but she was only always, she was either always one or one and a half or two salespeople for all of Southern California. And that wasn't enough. Um, she was selling a lot of wine though, but some of the wineries were not happy that there wasn't better, broader um, representation. Uh, so I think it was in uh, 2000 and, might have been the year 2000 or 2001, we partnered with uh, like we had with Curlew with Mosaic Wine Alliance. And uh, they were covering all of Southern California and they were into growing their company too, which they've done. And uh, so we're, we're totally statewide since 1996, just California. Actually, I dove into uh, Nevada, particularly Las Vegas, uh, but that didn't work out too well. We had to go through Southern, and uh, that was a partnership that didn't work out well for us. They can't all be victories, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So as, as your reach was growing in terms of the, the state, how I assume you were adding more wineries all the time. Tell, tell me about, especially the, the 90s in Oregon, a, a, the first period of real big growth in Oregon wines. What were you finding in terms of the new producers and the new wines coming out, and, and, and how, how many people were you selling? How many different brands were you selling at that point? Yeah, I didn't count them up, or I, maybe I did, um, but that was so long ago, I don't really keep track of how many by number we have. But, um, well, I, I mentioned the ones that we started with, and then Stephen said, there's this new winery, you gotta check them out. This was the next year, like maybe in 86. Uh, Bethel Heights, you know, they're, they're really gonna be good. So, went and visited. Um, but I had actually met Terry Castile before that because I'm sure there's been a lot of talk in the archives about the Steamboat Conference, Pinot Noir Conference. Well, I was one of the lucky non-winemakers who was invited to participate because, I don't know if this was the big cause, but um, it was being held in those days at Acacia in Carneros. And um, Stephen, knowing me already, um, and knowing that I was in Napa Valley uh, and interested, um, invited me. And so I went to Steamboat, Acacia, uh, must have been 1984, and I met there uh, in a David Lett, Dick, Dick Erath, Bill Fuller, Bill Blosser, um, 
and uh, Terry Castile, who I think just had his first 1984, <laughs> yeah, as a barrel sample that he brought. Uh, yeah, Ron Vilstek, yeah, several others, and, and the Californians. Um, and uh, so, yeah, those are ones that I was really interested in visiting because mm -hmm. I could tell they were serious. If you're going a steamboat, you're serious about your quality and improving it. I mean, I, I knew when we started that it was still just the start mm -hmm. <laughs> for the quality of Oregon wine. And uh, so, yeah, like I say, those who are at Steamboat, they were serious at going after quality. And so I went after them. <laughs> yeah. What was your impression of, of Steamboat? Um, I was in a little over my head. <laughs> but I learned about pH and acidity and Britannomyces. And you asked me how I learned about flaws. A lot of what I learned about flaws was came from Steamboat. Not only there, but quite a great deal. Um, and uh, I learned I really like wine growers <laughs> hanging around them. They're just really, I mean, nine, nine out of ten at least are really good people. <laughs> Occasionally there's a curmudgeon, <laughs> but they're usually pretty nice curmudgeons. <laughs> And in terms of the, the, the layout of Steamboat, I mean, the idea was obviously it, kind of an insiders only and, and talking talking openly and honestly about the wines, right, and about the flaws. So how did you find that those conversations went? How did people react? How did, how did they work together? How did they how did they react when their wines were criticized? Or, you know, what, what was it like being there? Uh, well, you've heard this one before also, that often, you know, the, the worst critic in the blind tasting on that wine was the winemaker himself, and then was surprised to see it was their wine. <laughs> yeah, uh, so that kind of surprised me too that some of them didn't recognize the wine that they chose to put in the tasting. And you're supposed to bring a problem wine, and you know you got a problem. You you might not know what the problem is, but you know what it smells like. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it was fantastic for me, um, but even, of course, more fantastic for the producers who got to put into practice what they learned every year at this. Yeah. So in the, like I said earlier, the, the 1990s, obviously, growth in Oregon wine and the first, the next kind of wave of sort of out, outsiders, quote unquote, outsiders coming in and starting new things. What did you see from the industry in the in the in that in that decade? Were there were there kind of seminal moments for you in the from the kind of late '80s to 2000 that that you either new producers or new projects that that excited you? Well, yeah, I mean, um, Willa Kenzie. There's a Burgundian who maybe the first Burgundian, who no, maybe the second Druin, right? right? Yeah, and then then uh, the Lacruts. Uh, with Bernie coming from Burgundy, and uh, we picked up their first vintage. Uh, and yeah, so you could see with Druin coming in and Willa Kenzie, and um, there were some Californians came in. Um, 
I mean, ones who already had California wineries, because some of the early um, Oregon pioneers were Californians themselves, but they weren't California wineries coming in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They were pioneer producers mm -hmm. of Oregon. And, um, but yeah, we saw California coming in as well. And of course, we know what it's like today. It's like, yeah, there's, it's getting to be like Napa. <laughs> talk a little bit about that as we get to a, later in the interview I got a question about that for you but um, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious also was there a point for you at well, you mentioned sort of seven years in you're finally able to pay yourself you feel like you're, you've got a successful thing going was there a point for you w when did you recognize that Oregon wines were a thing where, where they were where people were seeking them out where people were excited about them maybe more so than other wines when did they be, when did they were on the map I can't point to a certain month or year. I don't know. It was just a gradual, very slow, <laughs> very slow, but very steady upward trajectory. Um, yeah, it didn't just come all at once. Even with some of the landmark blind tastings that were written up in the New York Times and, and whatnot, um, that I don't think really pulled the consumer that much, if at all. I think what really got the consumers is the trade being behind mm -hmm. behind it, um, the retailers, the restaurateurs, and a lot of the work that you know our company and and the Oregon wine industry did to promote the wines, too. What did you feel like was the re was your responsibility and your company's responsibility toward the Oregon wine industry? Obviously, your your it's a you know both of you succeed if both of you succeed kind of thing. But how did you feel? What kind of what was your responsibility towards people you were working for, and and how did you kind of see your role in helping the industry grow? Our responsibility um, was to do the best we could <laughs> um, in uncharted waters. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there were never any guarantees of how far we would get. And, um, but our responsibility was, and still is, to do the best we can. And part B of that was? Uh, just, so, uh, what, what was your role? How, what, how, how did you, what was your role in the Oregon wine industry? How do you, how do you feel your role is in helping the industry grow? Yeah, by uh, by messaging uh, about these wines, just to to present them, to discuss them, to educate our customers and our customers' customers at tastings that I would be at, um, and we would have trade tastings, and we'd have public tastings, and we'd have wine dinners, and we'd have winemakers come down for them, and all these kinds of things to get the wine in people's glasses, mm -hmm. because once they taste them, they like them, and they buy them, yeah. So obviously you've, you've seen most of the changes in the Oregon wine industry because you've, you've, been, you've been around it long enough to see. What are the biggest changes you've seen? You mentioned how it's more like Napa now. 
What are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry in, in, the, in, the, in the decades you've been working with it, and, and what does the industry look like now comparatively? What, what, what's, what's different? Yeah. So, like I said, when I was in Napa Valley in the uh, 83, 84, 85, um, and I knew everybody there. Well, in 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, maybe in, in through the mid-90s, I knew everyone in Oregon. <laughs> now I don't know hardly anyone. <laughs> um, but um, it's just exploded, right? That's, that's why I don't know hardly anyone. I can't, every time I look at a list of wineries in Oregon, there's more that I haven't heard of before. And I'm sure a lot of the wineries up here are the same way. They can't, they don't know who, who that is <laughs> on the other side of town from them. <laughs> yeah. What about the wines themselves? Well, they've gone through a lot of changes, um, partly due to climate, partly due to quality improvements, uh, viticultural, viticultural improvements, winemaking improvements. They've swung through different styles as well, partly due to, I think, uh, wine critic uh, influence, uh, and maybe seeing what's sold really well and sticking with that for a while. And they're just going through different fads and phases uh, of winemaking techniques. Mm -hmm. Those come and go too. Uh, yeah, there's no uh, winemaking secrets. You know, every every one can get any kind of information they want about that. So uh, I think the it's all about the vineyards. That's where all the quality is coming from, and you can let that express itself or you can do all kinds of things to manipulate it in, all, in whatever kind of way you want. So we see that's a big difference today from the early days because in the early days it was everyone had pretty much had neutral barrels and they pretty much all made wine the same way and it was just getting it from the vineyard into the bottle without messing it up. And uh, they all had a very, they had their differences, but they had a similar style where they were, they were very, very Oregon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Today, there still are wines like that today, but there's also wines that are very international. They could be from anywhere and be very good, but with the warmer climate and with techniques available, and this is not just an Oregon thing. I mean, it's, you can find this in any country, an in international style. Interesting phrase. I haven't heard that before. I like it. I like that, international style. Um, when it comes to Oregon wines, uh, how would you describe a classically Oregon wine? What, what are the words that you think of when you think of a classically Oregon wine? What I think of yeah. as a classical Oregon wine might not be what you think of. <laughs> um, but. To me, classical Oregon wine is unmanipulated. It's 
um, and not, it's unforced. It's um, first of all, it's uh, it's comes from really good vineyards. Really good vineyards are those that are planted on really good sites. Really good sites are ones that will ripen the grapes just to their utmost uh, quality in coincidence with the end of the growing season. And um, if you can manage that um, and then not manipulate the wine, but let the vineyard express itself or the vineyard blend express it itself, um, you're going to have classical Oregon wine. <laughs> That's my opinion. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't think you're unique in that opinion of a classic Oregon wine. I, I, I think that's 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 a pretty common description that we hear. Um, so the past couple of years, obviously, have been an interesting challenge for a number of reasons. Uh, you mentioned this is your first time up here in, in, in a little while, and w welcome back to Oregon. Um, tell me about uh, the challenges of the past couple of years from your side. Uh, what have been the biggest challenges for getting through the, the pandemic? Well, we lost all of our restaurant business. <laughs> Uh, a lot of our restaurants are permanently closed. Um, those that are open today went through periods where they were closed. And then some of them reopened and then closed again. <laughs> uh, some that serve, those that are open today um, that used to serve lunch don't anymore for the most part. Um, those who served seven days a week now serve six or five or four days a week. And they used to be open till 10 and now they're open till nine. Uh, and this is not just a restaurant thing. I mean, it's all kinds of industries where they can't find enough help. So everybody's stretched. Um, and uh, wine lists have shrunk and price points have lowered. <laughs> That's a challenge. <laughs> so, um, but uh, we're getting our restaurant business back. I don't know when we'll ever get it back to where it was, but we had really good sales years during COVID because of retail. <laughs> uh, our retail just went whew, like crazy. I mean, people didn't stop drinking wine. They just didn't drink wine in the restaurants. So was that a, I was going to ask what the biggest shifts you had to make were. So I guess that, that's what it is. You, you, you put your work into retail shops rather than restaurants. How did that work for, for the, the way your business was working? Was that, a, was that a, a difficult change to make or it was a pretty natural, natural flow? It was a natural flow. Um, some wineries, and some distributors are, are very discriminating about where their wines are placed. Um, and they want to be like, we just want to be in restaurant only. Mm -hmm. Or we want 80% of our wines in restaurants and 20% in retail. Well, we're not like that as a company. We're like, we're happy to have our wines purchased and sold through whatever company <laughs> wants to buy them. <laughs> As long as they pay their bills, <laughs> so we can pay ours. <laughs> yeah, and so because of that, 
our retail was, has always been strong and it only got stronger. And I think it could have been more and was more difficult for a lot of wineries and distributors who were like very restaurant focused. I mean, our restaurants, of course, were tremendously important to us. But so have always our retailers been. I mean, when we still have accounts from our first year, 1985, that still buy from us. It's amazing. Strong retail supporters and restaurants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When it comes to building and maintaining a relationship like that, what have you found? Are there what are the keys? What are the keys from from your perspective on keeping a relationship for for 35 years? Well, for us, we have to continue to offer quality, uncompromised quality and value and service. Simple. Well, not as simple as it sounds, but, but it's not rocket science, yeah. So the other part of the question I was going to ask earlier, obviously 2020 in Oregon had its own special set of challenges with our, with our bout of wildfires that affected harvest. How did it affect your work? What, what, did you, what, what did you see as a result of the production that year? Do you mean the 2020 vintage yeah. and marketing it? Or, even even acquiring even acquiring a vintage since there was so little so much less wine right so yeah as you mentioned the fires um, of course the valley is what 160 miles long and 60 miles wide at the widest so the fires weren't the same everywhere and they had greater or lesser or no impact depending on the vineyard and the the variety and when it was picked, how it was processed, how it was blended, how it was sorted. Um, and then there's producers who made bottled no wine in 2020, okay? And then even if there weren't the fires, it was already, in a, it was already set up to be a small vintage. And those who did bottle wine didn't, for the most part, didn't bottle all the wine. They're like, no, that's not going into the bottle. So you got a small vintage and you're separating out your smokiest lots. And I mean, we have some 2020, well, a lot of the 2020 whites are fantastic with no smoke evident. I've seen a few smoky whites, but hardly any. Um, and some of the pink wines were fine too. Um, and some of the reds, fewer of them, but, and then when, and then when there's, there's smoke and there's smoke. <laughs> um, like a little bit of smoke, it's like high char mm -hmm. barrels. <laughs> Just seems, oh, it's kind of a little bit oaky or something, you know. And then, you know, there's everything from there to like, you know, a, a really filthy ashtray that hasn't been cleaned in 40 years and is used every day. But there's everything in between. And different people have different sensitivities to smoke, too. So what might seem smoky to me might not to you. So we just put the wine in front of the people and let them make up their own minds. And if they say no, we say OK. <laughs> if they say ship it, we ship it. <laughs> 
talk a little bit about the about the changes you've seen in Oregon wine, and obviously now it's significantly bigger in every way. Um, what do you see for it next? What 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 is the next step for Oregon wine? Well, I never saw this step coming. <laughs> <laughs> How could I see the next? <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be just more of the same. Um, what's sad for me to see is a lot of the family wineries, you know, getting acquired rather than carrying on the tradition. But again, this is not just an Oregon thing. Yeah. It's so there's going to be more of that, no doubt. Uh, but there'll be new family owned and operated wineries too that will continue on in this way. What about the wines themselves? Obviously, Pinot has been the thing for, for most of Oregon's life, but there are other, other varietals on board now and other things coming along. What have you seen from the wine styles and types that has you thinking about for the future? What, what are you thinking about for the future in terms of non-Pinot Noir? Southern Oregon, <laughs> yeah, and Eastern Oregon, mm -hmm. and the Gorge. So these areas are already showing their tremendous potential. Mm -hmm. They've got it. So um, some of those areas are sort of where the Willamette Valley was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And, but the learning curve, you know, in the early days was like this, whereas the learn, learning curve today is like this. So um, the progress is just tremendous. There's, but it's still rather early for those regions. So yeah, there's so much other than Pinot that is and will be coming out of Oregon that is and will be world class. What are the challenges for you for selling selling that to an audience outside of Oregon that may just think of Oregon Pinot Noir and nothing else? It's like starting all over again, <laughs> which is okay. That's, I mean, if it were easy, and there were no challenges, it would get boring. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for you and for your business? Uh, we're gonna maintain what we have. Um, we're not aggressively looking to grow the portfolio, but if just the right thing comes along, it would be foolish to pass up. <laughs> um, but it would really have to be right in all kinds of ways. You know, um, back then, <laughs> the labels, you know, really bad label design in the early days, for the most part. Not everyone, but almost everyone. And, um, and then some wineries would change their label, and it was different, but it was still just as bad. And they, same thing over and over, change it, change it, and it's like, but it's still just as bad. <laughs> um, but it didn't really matter because people weren't that image conscious. They were, people were more interested in like what was in the bottle and the story behind it. And today, it's everything has to be right. Yeah, the packaging, the story, the messaging, the the wine, the value, the it's so much more competitive. 
you talk about? Both within Oregon mm -hmm. and internationally. Mm -hmm. The competition, Oregon against Oregon, getting those brands promoted, and Oregon against the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There's just so much good wine and great wine available today. You touched on story there, which is always something I'm curious about when it comes to selling wine, because we've always heard that a good, a good story can sell a wine. In your experience, what, what, do people, what, do, what do people react to when it comes to a wine story? Real people, um, real genuine, authentic people who have worked with their own hands to create something of beauty. So obviously you took kind of an interesting path into the industry and kind of forged your own way forward. Uh, what, what advice would you give or what words of wisdom would you have for someone who was interested in joining the wine industry? Don't. <laughs> no, that's a joke. Um, um, so the wine industry is huge. I mean, there's so many different avenues like what do you mean? What do you want to do? Production? You want to grow grapes? Do you want to make wine? Do you want to design wineries? Do you want to be a label designer? Do you want to market? Do you want to distribute? I mean, do you want to do PR? I mean, it's a huge, there's so many, so many possibilities of what one could do. Um, you got to find what your love is, your love and passion, and make sure you really know it and study it. Learn from people what you can and, and work hard at it. And uh, good luck. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. All the questions that I have for you today, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here that we should have covered? No, I think that I think that would cover quite a bit, actually. Good. That's, the, that's always the plan. Well, thank you so much for your time, for making it out here today on your on your whirlwind tour of McMinnville. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's nice to finally meet you, and welcome back to Oregon. Thank we'll you. Go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>